So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, uh, from verse 14 down to chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, our great high priest and the throne of grace. Uh, when Martin Luther was commenting on this passage that we were going to be looking at, uh, he said about this passage, First the apostle terrifies us, then he comforts us. <coughs> there is the terror of the passage that we read before, um, which I suppose involves the, the terror of thinking that one could uh, fail to enter into the rest of God. Uh, and also the, the verse which we were studying last time in regard to the word of God uh, being sharper than a two-edged sword and exposing the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, there is a terror attached to that. Uh, to the extent that we understand how sinful we are, it's an awful thought to think that our innermost thoughts are open to God. Uh, now he brings to us wonderful comfort. This is a, a passage tonight of great comfort to the Lord's people. Yes, our heart is laid bare, but we also have one who is sympathetic to us. We have a throne of grace to which we may come. Uh, if we try to, to boil down, I mean, the, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, let's face it, is not the easiest letter, and there are passages that are very difficult. But if we ask the question, what is the, the great contribution that this letter makes to our understanding of the Christian faith, we would probably say that uh, it is chiefly our understanding of the high priestly office of Christ. It's Jesus in his work as a high priest that uh, we learn from more than perhaps any other uh, part of the New Testament. And we're going to learn how Jesus' high priesthood uh, excels the, the Aaronic or the Levitical high priest. Uh, how uh, in this very mysterious uh, phrase, he's a, a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that's going to come uh, a bit later. Uh, but we can keep this even more simply tonight, and that is to say that uh, we have a priest who is not remote from us. He understands us. He's clothed with sympathy towards us. And you are encouraged to come to him. To come often to him in prayer. To unburden yourself before him. And to receive strength for your trials from him. The letter is written to a group of Hebrew Christians who are feeling pressure from two directions. There, there's there's a, a challenge that comes from the outside. There was official state opposition to the Christian faith. And they're wavering. Uh, they're wavering. We're told that uh, they are inclined to be inattentive. They're on the verge of throwing in the towel. The writer has to exhort them to hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 2. seems that the pressure they were under... Uh, was uh, official and it was informal. Uh, it was coming from friends. There was official uh, persecution. Uh, the state opposed the early church. The Roman state opposed the early church. 
some religions had protected status within the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman em- Empire liked things to, to move along nicely, and so uh, the status quo uh, was very important. So if a religion was recognised, it could carry on, so long as the emperor had his place. They weren't keen on additions to the number of recognised religions. And so the, the Jewish faith had recognition, but uh, the Christians did not. And there is documented evidence of a whole range of uh, state-sponsored persecution. Verbal abuse in the theatre, public floggings, imprisonment, confiscation of property, uh, exile to to barren countries, uh, and death. Many of the Hebrew Christians wondered if they could stand up under such opposition. And then there was the pull from their old religion. Uh, There were the ones who had stayed true to the old faith, to Judaism. And they were remarking on the absence of these outward trappings of religion. Uh, High priest with all his his dress. Uh, the, The temple in Jerusalem, sacrifices and so on. And we have the response of the writer. We have a great high priest. We have one. Uh, unseen. Uh, in the heavens. Now, in our own day, uh, Christians feel pressure in those same areas. Increasingly, uh, in society, there is official opposition to Christianity. Whereas in the past, the establishment uh, respected Christianity and Christianity had a privileged uh, position uh, in the country, uh, things have changed very, very radically from that old situation. <coughs> People can lose their jobs because of Christian principle. A uh, few examples from recent times. Uh, a Christian judge who passed the opinion that a child being put up for adoption would be better off in a home where the parents were of the opposite sex lost his job for uh, being forthright. Uh, a few years ago, there was a case of the nurse who was disciplined for praying with a patient. Uh, even locally, as chaplains, we had <laughs> complaints, I think, from uh, some of the pupils in the high school because our Christmas assemblies had been too Christian and not inclusive enough. And it's really quite hard to have a Chris- Christmas assembly that's not Christian. But there you are. Anyone who's open about being a Christian in the public sphere is going to feel the force of society's opposition to the Christian faith. And then there comes this little voice uh, inside. Wouldn't it be an awful lot easier? Wouldn't I be creating a lot less bother for myself and others if I just kept quiet? And then there's the inner struggle of the soul with temptation, opposition without, and temptation and doubts and fears within. And one of these would be that no one really experiences the kind of temptation that I experience. I am a unique case. You know of a young man, uh, learned recently of a young man who, who struggles with same-sex attraction. Not a Christian, 
but he has a Christian friend and he knows what the Bible says about homosexuality and what following Jesus would mean. And his response, at the moment at least, is that if he was to live a celibate life, he would have a struggle that is more than anyone else would have to contend with. Uh, It is an extra layer on him than anyone else has to cope with. How many people there are like that who feel that their own situation is at the far end of the spectrum or even off the spectrum and there's no one that really understands my struggles? And the cry of the heart is if there's only someone who could understand me, if there's only someone who wouldn't judge me, there's someone who could take me by the hand and bring me to God. If there's only someone who could bring me strength. And that is what we have in Jesus. That is exactly what the writer is saying about Jesus. Uh, he does these things in his role as a high priest. A high priest was, uh, in a sense, a man of two worlds. Uh, he had to belong to the world of, of human, humanity. And he represented men and women to God. But he also had to be fully in touch with God so that he represented God to the people. Uh, His task is described in verse 1 of chapter 5. It is to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's the work of a high priest. That's what the high priest did. He takes our part. He represents us to God. And he represents God to us. He's the go-between. And he makes provision. He actually does something. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. Gifts and sacrifices, just interchangeable ways of describing the the offerings that the the high priest uh, did in in the tabernacle, in the temple. And specifically, they're for sins. It's above all the problem of human sinfulness that the priest uh, is, is there to deal with. The problem of being reconciled with a holy God that we have offended by our sinfulness. And the big uh, day in the life of the high priest, uh, the, the day that expressed his work, was the day of atonement. And on the day of atonement, uh, there was a sacrifice that was made for the sin of the high priest himself, and one made for the people. And then there was the, the very dramatic uh, act of the high priest laying his hand upon uh, one of the goats, the, 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 the live goat, and confessing the sin of the people over the goat, and then sending this goat uh, out into a, a desert place, a lonely place. Hence the expression we have, a scapegoat. And in Jesus, we have a high priest who is both sympathetic to our situation and powerful to help us. We should not be afraid of coming to Jesus. We should not be slow in coming to Jesus. He's willing to help us. He invites us to come. His word is inviting us tonight to come to him with confidence. Uh, And that's a wonderful comfort that there is in this message Uh, We have one who is uh, powerful and sympathetic 
and we may approach him in confidence. Now, the arguments that are put forward uh, for us doing this, for us having courage to come to Jesus, confessing our sins and asking for strength, uh, the arguments are intertwined in the two sections. There's a section divided by the the chapter heading, the end of chapter 4 and then into chapter 5, down to verse 10. And we're going to bring them together. Uh, First of all, uh, looking at the, the sheer greatness of Jesus because he is the high priest who is God. And then we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is supremely qualified. In chapter 5, the the writer is pointing to the qualifications that a, a high priest had in Israel. And he's saying, well, Jesus is supremely qualified. Qualifications were that he had to be appointed by God and he had to be sympathetic. And by sympathetic... Uh, He had to understand temptation, Uh, he had to know obedience, and he had to know what suffering was all about. Uh, Jesus was appointed by God, and he's sympathetic in these three areas. So let's turn to them now. Let's begin uh, with uh, what the the writer says about Jesus being a great high priest. We have a great high priest. He is no ordinary high priest. Jesus is the, the high priest Par excellence. He is the ultimate high priest. He is the high priest uh, against which all other priests were simply uh, copies. Or they were shadows. They were pointers towards the reality. And the reason that he's greater than the rest, why in fact he is in a unique character category, is that because he is divine. He hasn't had this honour conferred on him by, by people. Uh, It is his by right because his character is divine. And that is expressed by the fact that he has gone through the heavens. We have a high priest, uh, a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. A glorious thought. Jesus, as the Son of God, has gone through the heavens. Now, in the tabernacle and the temple, the, the architecture was, was really interesting because it was, in a way, expressive of this. So you had the courtyard where the people were, and then you had the, the tent of meeting where the priest could go, uh, any of the priests could go to, to make the sacrifice, and you had the, the, the table and the, the lampstand and, the, temp, and the, the, the tent of meeting. But then you had the Holy of Holies, which was only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest after the shedding of blood. And there we had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this box in which was contained the law, the Ten Commandments. And the cover was referred to as the the, the mercy seat. So you have the law in a box, you have this mercy seat, and you have the cherubim on either side uh, facing down, overarching the box and facing down. So here's a seat. Who's sitting on the seat? Well, God, in in a, a kind of pictorial way, is sitting on the seat. He's enthroned between the cherubim. Here is a a, a very potent picture of the presence of God. 
And he looks, as he looks down, he sees a reminder of the law, and the law is broken, a law that was broken by every individual who has ever lived. And when the blood from sacrifice is taken in and is sprinkled on the mercy seat, God looks down and sees no longer a broken law, but he sees atonement. He sees a, a, a reminder of a life forfeited, a life taken. The penalty of sin has been discharged. And God no longer looks on our offence, but is satisfied. All that's represented here. And Jesus uh, has gone through the heavens. On earth, he ascended up in the cloud. He was hidden from view of the disciples uh, when he left us. The Jews sometimes spoke of, of heavens in this way. Uh, and when they, when they spoke of, of heavens or the three heavens, uh, they spoke first of all of the heaven of sky and of the starry firmament, the heaven of the angels, and then the highest heavens, meaning the presence of God. Jesus has passed through every heaven that can be and is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus has gone through the heavens, the Son of God. Hence his greatness. Jesus is uniquely qualified as a high priest because he is God and man. He is both Son of Mary and Son of God. He alone is qualified to bridge the gap between sinful man and his holy creator. He's one with God. He who is God has come to our aid in the flesh so that as our fellow man, he might take us our place on the cross and then by his resurrection, ascension and glorification, open up the place for us to be into, in the presence of God himself. He is the, the forerunner of all who will uh, be raised from the dead. He's a great high priest because he is God. That's the first thing that uh, the writer says about Jesus as our high priest. Uh, he is supremely and uniquely fitted to us because he's divine. Now, does that therefore mean that uh, we can't relate to him because we're humans and our priest is Divine, No, he is supremely qualified to act for us. And the writer mentions, actually, there are basically two qualifications that he speaks of that the high priest uh, needed uh, to meet in order to be that high priest. Uh, they were, he needed to be chosen by the people and he was taken from amongst the people and had to be sympathetic. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them. Uh, verse 4. No one takes his honour upon himself. He must be called by God. Let's take the second one first. He must be called by God. A high priest must be called by God. Now, in the Old Testament, there are examples of some people who did take the office on themselves and were judged. Uh, so... In the time of Moses, when Aaron was high priest, uh, you had a rebellion against them, uh, led by Korah, Dothan, and Abiram. And they rejected 
uh, the priestly authority of Moses and Aaron. And then there was King Uzziah, who went into the temple uh, uh, to make an offering, and he was struck with leprosy because he was not appointed, and he took it upon himself to do that which wasn't his place to do. It's interesting, and we were uh, mentioning this in the, in the prayer meeting tonight, that in the time of Jesus, the high priesthood was quite corrupt. And there, there was this uh, <coughs> self-appointed uh, network. There was a, a nepotism going on in the high priesthood. Caiaphas was officially the high priest, he was the son-in-law of Annas, who had, and he was of the, the Levitical line, but he'd been deposed by the Romans, but he managed to get his son-in-law, at Caiaphas, appointed. And not only his son-in-law, but also other members of the family were appointed in, high, in priestly roles in Jerusalem at the time of our Lord. And in contrast to the, the present-day corruption of the, the high priesthood, Jesus is appointed by God. And it was at Jesus' baptism that in the hearing of all, Jesus is appointed as our go-between. And so a writer quotes uh, Psalm 2, uh, which is echoed in the words of God at the Jordan when Jesus is baptised. You are my son, today I have become your father. This was Jesus' ordination, his anointing to the work of a great high priest. He was going to bear the sin of the people. He was going to be our intermediary. Now the, the point is, Jesus didn't take the honour on himself. He is appointed by the Father. He meets the requirements of a high priest. So, that's the first qualification. A high priest had to be appointed by God Jesus has been appointed by God. The second qualification is that he had to be sympathetic. Now that's the, that's the significance of verse 5, uh, being selected from among men. It seems a kind of ordinary thing to say, but only one uh, who was from the, the mass of humanity was fit. Now that is to say it couldn't be an angel. An angel was not fit to represent the people because the angel belonged to a different category. He couldn't have a fellow feeling for those he represented. The priest had to be sympathetic. Verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Therefore, he has to offer sacrifices for the sins of his people. That was true. On the Day of Atonement, even, uh, there's a very... Uh, visible acknowledgement that the priest's a sinner because the priest has to make sacrifice for himself first before he can go and make sacrifice for the people. But Jesus, our high priest, is without sin. Does that mean, therefore, that he is less sympathetic? Does it mean that when we pray to God, uh, we don't meet with understanding because God is just too remote from our broken situation. No, not at all. And, and the writer says that Jesus, although he's sinless, is sympathetic, has points of contact with us that make it easy for us to come to him. And these are three 
points of contact. First of all, Jesus knows what it is to struggle with sin. Jesus knows what it is to struggle with sin. Back in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Similarity, difference. He was tempted like we are, yet he never sinned. That's the difference between the the Jewish high priests uh, who were subjected to weakness. His uh, weakness was not one of sinfulness. But just because Jesus never sinned doesn't mean that he didn't experience the, the ferocity of temptation that we may experience. In fact, the reverse is true. Jesus experienced temptation to agree, a degree that we will never experience. And the reason is that we give in to temptation and very often at an early stage. Sometimes in, in my own mind, I, I, I think about the, you know, the dreadful torturing that Christians endure in other countries and, and what Christians have endured in the early church uh, times and, and think, how would, I, how would I stand up under that you know, relentless pain? How on earth uh, would I cope in that situation? And I suppose what, what very often happens under these extreme situations of, of, of having pain inflicted upon one, uh, people very often black out, don't they? They lose consciousness. And, and at that point, the, the pain ends, I suppose. And that's what it's like for us in our temptation. We, we give in to, to temptation. But imagine uh, for someone, going back to the the experience of pain, someone who didn't lose consciousness, but retains his alertness as the torture, the the infliction of pain goes on and on and on. That's a much worse situation than the person who simply blacks out uh, at an early stage. Well, with Jesus, the same was true of temptation, the experience of temptation. He never gave in. He never put up the, the, the surrender flag. We've seen it in relation to the relentless temptation to be pulled away from going to the cross. Very recently, studying in the morning, the, the temptation in the wilderness. Satan uh, comes to Jesus when he's weakened after a 40-day period of fasting. Satan springs up with the temptation to rely on his own resources, to whip up a following, to have a kingdom without going to the cross. On and on and on. Jesus emerges victorious. Same temptation comes back in different guises. Remember when Jesus has told the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to be killed and Peter uh, speaks up, never, never. 
And anyone else will abandon you, but I won't abandon you. And remember Jesus' response, uh, and it sounds harsh to our ears. You know, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is recognizing in Peter's words the, the very voice of Satan. Satan say to him, uh, look, even your friends don't understand why you would want to, to lay down your life. There are your friends saying, they, they will stand with you. They won't abandon you. You don't need to go down that particular route. Save your skin. And then at the very end, uh, it, it, it continues right to, to Jesus' uh, last dying gasps from the cross. Uh, the, the taunting voices that are, are hurled at him uh, from below the, 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 the foot of the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. See, there's a different way uh, to uh, gain the, the faith of people. Don't die on the cross. Come down from the cross. We'll believe you. No one experienced temptation like this man. And because that is so, I have, you have, someone who is completely sympathetic, who understands how you're feeling when you feel under the cosh in terms of temptation. Jesus knows what it is to struggle with temptation. Jesus knows what, it's to, what it is to submit to God's will. Look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and who was heard because of his reverent submission. What's this talking about? Where are we here? It's Gethsemane, isn't it? Almost certainly this is what the writer has in mind. Jesus' prayer of anguish in Gethsemane. What is Jesus praying for? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is praying that if there is any other way to save sinners, rather than go into the darkness of becoming sin and bearing punishment for sin, if there's any other way, Lord, Father, give me that way. And the answer? No. There is no other way. Jesus learned what it is to submit to the Father's will. And there are many of us, and if not all of us in church tonight, who know in, in some realm or other what it is to accept God no to our prayer. Lord, give me this job. Lord, heal my marriage. Back to the early example. Lord, Affirm for me this same-sex attraction that I feel. 
And God's no is so hard to submit to. And it can be an experience of anguish to know that what we yearn for is not in God's will. Do we come to someone unfamiliar with that when we come to Jesus? Absolutely not. Jesus knows what it is to struggle with sin. Jesus knows what it is to submit to his Father's will. And Jesus knows what it is to experience suffering. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now that that doesn't mean, it sounds as though it means, but it doesn't mean that Jesus moved from one condition of lesser obedience to one of complete obedience. Uh, Jesus was never incompletely obedient. What does it mean to learn obedience? Well, it means that there was a time when Jesus' willingness to suffer was put to the test. You know, the way the psalm expresses that the the willingness of the Son to come and do the Father's will. Lo, here I am, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. And in the councils of eternity, the Son commits to doing the Father's will. And in history, in time, that willingness is put to the test. And it is tested especially in the cauldron of suffering. It was as he lived a human life subject to temptation, experiencing suffering and opposition, that obedience moved from being a prior commitment to obey to an experience. Jesus had not only to take human flesh like Adam, he had to be tested like Adam and to overcome unlike Adam. And his obedience was perfected for us in the arena of suffering. Therefore, when we suffer, in whatever way we're called on to suffer, we come to one who knows all about suffering. When we're praying uh, in the middle of the night because we can't get to sleep, because we're racked with pain, because we've got some worry or concern, we come to one who understands. We come to a priest, to Jesus, who is sympathetic. And that's ultimately the, the, the message for each one of us tonight. Don't be slow in coming to Jesus. Don't be misled into thinking that your situation is so unique that Jesus could not understand. Your situation is not unique. And you will find <coughs> a welcome. Understanding. Forgiveness and grace to help you in your time of need. 
it's so wonderful to think of this in terms of the, the, the scope of redemption story. We were in Exodus some weeks, some months back. And it, thinking of the time when God comes to Mount Sinai and Moses is to meet with him alone. And God gives all of the instructions to, to Moses. Cordon off the mountain. Don't let anyone near. If anyone touches the mountain, they will be put to death. Stay away. Keep back danger. And the mountain is smoking. It's on fire. God has come down. He's enthroned in all of the awesomeness of Sinai. And now we have another throne. We have a a throne that is now a mercy seat. And Calvary has extinguished Sinai's flame. And the voice is now, come near. Come near. Come close. We have a high priest who is touched with sympathy for our condition. Let us come, therefore, with confidence before his throne of grace that we might find forgiveness and grace to help us in our time of need. May God bless to us his word.